Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. So it's that time again when the world waits to see which country is best at kicking a ball. Woo-hoo. But which countries will deliver world-beating returns to shareholders over the next four years? That's the real prize. Today, we host our own Stock Market World Cup with four closely fought international matchups. And in today's dumb question of the week, why do index funds not perfectly track the performance of an index? Okay, let's get into it. Romin, you're not a football fan, are you? Not really. I have to say I hate it. <laughs> you hate it? So strong. So the World Cup has begun amid allegations of abuse of workers, corruption, and just a thoroughly depressing spectacle in 2022. So that is a bit like finance, in fact. I was going to say, that is okay. basically the stock market, isn't it, in 2022? <laughs> Don't anyone tell me this is a contrived format. So what we're going to do, we've got four well-matched, closely fought fixtures, which we're going to talk through, and which stock market is going to outperform the other over the next four years. But before we get into that, a couple of caveats, Romin. So one is that the stock market is not the economy, is it? No, because the GDP growth for a country doesn't necessarily feed into corporate earnings. That's the key thing. And, you know, the stock market could do really badly and you could have a really happy, healthy, well-resourced country. Stock markets aren't everything. And I'm surprised I'm saying that. <laughs> yeah. And the second caveat is we're going to be talking about valuation, but... It's not necessarily comparing apples to apples, is it, when you look at valuations between different countries? Some countries always trade at a low valuation multiple. So, for example, if you compare the UK and the US on something like the CAPE measure, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings measure, the UK always trades at a discount. It's just historically the way we trade. So usually what's best is to compare the country's price to earnings multiple with its own history, as well as other countries. Yeah, so that's just something to bear in mind when we're saying a country looks cheap. So that brings us to our first fixture, which is the UK versus France. The European grudge match here, Roman. <laughs> gone on for centuries, hasn't it? <laughs> Used to be Agincourt, and it's now on an exchange. Yeah. I mean, the reason I've picked this as a matchup is that there was news last week, which you may have seen, where the Paris stock market, for the first time ever, I think, overtook London as Europe's most valuable stock exchange in dollar terms. And I saw that really upset some people. I mean, I don't think it's very relevant at all. I think the real story here is how tiny both countries are relative to the US. For example, if you look at market cap weighting, both of them are less than 4% of global market cap. Both are smaller than Apple. Yeah, one company. It's kind of incredible, really, isn't it? Yeah, the entire stock market of a country is smaller than one stock. It's bizarre. But still, I think it's a matter of national pride. And many people thought that after Brexit, the UK stock market would shrink. And that certainly seems to be what's happened. Yeah, so to me, that's the story here. It's not necessarily that France has now got a slightly bigger stock market. It's more that London was way ahead, even just, you know, three or four years ago. And that gap has just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And it doesn't seem to be slowing down at all. And the other problem, I guess, is new issuance, because a stock market is almost like a living thing. It's organic. It has growth due to new issuance. If lots of people love your stock market and it's a great way to raise capital, lots of companies will try to list on your exchange, even international companies. So the UK FTSE 100, for example, has lots of miners. But recently, the issuance on the London Stock Exchange has been fairly moribund. The same is true of France and yeah. other European exchanges, but we seem to have suffered disproportionately. 
So I think at the moment, what's driving France's stock market up relative to the UK's is the sectoral composition. So for example, the French luxury goods manufacturers are said to be doing well right now. So one thing that kind of stands out is France has about 22% industrials, whereas the UK, it's much smaller. It's about 11%, about half as much. Consumer discretionary makes up about 19% in France versus 5% in the UK. So is now the time to be in consumer discretionary? Before we've said no, but it seems that the expensive products some French companies make are actually doing quite well in terms of exports, at least. It really depends on how and where they're sold. So, for example, if it's French fashion and design, that's very sought after in China, for example. So as long as that demand holds up, you know, Italy as well punches above its weight when it comes to design and fashion. And that's a big export for the country. And I guess the other big difference really is the tech sector. So, for example, if you look at information technology, that's where the US is really big and where it's been a huge success story. For the UK market, MSCI UK, it's only 1% of the total sectoral composition. Whereas in France, not huge either. It's 6%, but it's still, you know, six times bigger than the UK. That's right. Now, financials is a big chunk of the UK market. It's about 16% versus only 9% in France. However, what that doesn't show you, that snapshot, is the shrinking of the financial sector in the UK versus the growth in France. And a large proportion of that is due to the reshoring of activity in various markets after Brexit. That hasn't been a huge effect, but it's certainly, you know, some markets literally moved overnight. I know Amsterdam and Frankfurt benefited quite significantly, didn't they? That's right. And I think France did to some extent, although to a lesser extent. So that's also a worry. You know, banker bashing, if that's what you want, great. But, you know, it's one thing that we're really good at in the UK. And it's been a good source of GDP growth and also stock market growth historically. And a good source of tax receipts for the government. I think it was like 20% of tax receipts at one point coming from the city of London. That's right. And, you know, if you look back at the 80s, it was responsible for a lot of the earnings growth, the average earnings growth in the UK. And a lot of your earnings growth. (laughs) Indeed. And uh, leaving it was a big source of earnings fall. Yeah. I mean, the interesting comparison you made earlier between European stock markets and the US and how they're kind of completely different beasts, really, aren't they? One thing I was reading about was the problem of fragmentation in Europe when it comes to stock exchanges. So in the US, you've just got a few. Whereas in Europe, you've got this real patchwork of equity markets. So something like 22 different stock exchange groups operating 30 different exchanges for listings. It's just a hugely complicated system. Yeah, I think you're right. If there is a company that's operating in Europe, they've got to think, well, look, where are we domiciled? Where are most of our revenues? And which exchange do we think is going to be best for us in terms of ease of raising capital and cost of raising capital? But also liquidity, you know, how much does the stock exchange trade? Eventually, what happens with these markets is that the ones which are most liquid become the winners. So I suspect what we'll get is some kind of consolidation over the next decade. There has been some consolidation, but just not on the scale, I think, that's needed to compete. So the European equity market is less than half the size of that in the US, but it has three times as many exchange groups and more than 10 times as many exchanges. It's like needless complexity, really, especially when Europe's trying to integrate around the EU. But look, if you're an investor and you buy the same stock in the same currency on two different exchanges, the price won't be exactly the same, but you can do arbitrage, so it'll be pretty close. So you don't really care. 
If it was in different currencies, maybe there'd be a consideration. But if they're within Europe, who cares, you know, whether it's on the Zeta exchange or the Amsterdam stock exchange? Yeah, I think there's just a whole complexity of plumbing behind the scenes to make all that work, though, which is less than ideal. As long as it works. I think you're right. It is complex. So there's 20 times as many post-trade infrastructure providers in the EU as versus the US. I mean, because everyone says, oh, the EU is kind of a similar size market to the US. Why isn't our stock market as big? I think this is a big reason. Yeah, the other point is, I guess, about earnings growth for European companies versus the US. And the reason why it's done so well historically is that it's just been much better at growing earnings. Yeah, there's definitely differences in the economies themselves. But I was focused on this market structure point because I think we kind of need to level the playing field either by integrating Europe better or by forcing the US to have separate stock exchanges for each state. You know, you look at what's happening in the US right now, there does seem to be a kind of balkanization in terms of politics. I mean, to come back to the UK versus France question, because we need to, you know, settle this fixture, there was some research by Bank of America which showed that a net 17% of fund managers are currently overweighting French equity in their portfolio. This was from 161 investment managers with over $300 billion of assets under management. So, you know, when they're overweighting France, maybe we should pay attention. And if you look at how many are overweighting the UK, well, it was 37% in September, and that has dropped to zero. No one is overweighting <laughs> the UK now in their portfolio <laughs> from this Bank of America survey. Well, clearly the mini budget has had an effect. I think that's the problem, which is that you have this kind of halo effect for countries which are doing well. And I'm not sure what you call the opposite. Okay, the final whistle has happened, Roman. The next four years, is France going to win? Is the UK going to win? Or I guess, if you're being boring, you could choose a draw. Uh, Definitely not a draw in this case. I think France probably on the balance of better growth in terms of earnings growth. And that's largely because it is an integrated part of the European market. Whereas the UK has chosen to go it alone. And I think that's going to be a problem given our trading relationship with Europe. And if we look at the forward price to earnings ratios, that's 9.4 for the UK and 11.6 for France. So a little bit more expensive in France, but not enough to, I think, reduce its future price growth. I mean, the UK, in terms of the forward price to earnings ratio, is looking maybe the most cheap of all the developed markets. Cheap for a reason, I think. You know, if you are contrarian, then maybe you think that there's going to be a turnaround. I just think reading the forecast from people like the Bank of England, it does paint a dreadful picture in terms of inflation and people's ability to spend money because households are simply poorer. But then I think something like 75% of the FTSE 100's earnings come from outside the UK. So again, yeah, that's right. The index you choose is very important. That's a thread that will go through all of these, which is that if it is an international company, then it's not so much its own earnings domestically, which matter. It's also demand for its products and services globally. I mean, we have pharmaceuticals and oil companies and natural resource miners. People need those still. And banks. And banks, yeah. But of course, a lot of those are now domestic banks, which are cyclical. So if there is a weaker economy, that won't help. So I think on the balance of forward PE and also economic prospects, I think France is probably the winner here. Oh, if only 60% of our audience wasn't in the UK. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and that brings us to the second matchup of the day, which is Germany versus China. And I've sort of dubbed this the battle of the big exporters. I like this comparison. I think, you know, you wouldn't naturally think of Germany and China as being comparable, but I like what you did there. I mean, I've put them together because, yes, they both have a huge trade surplus historically, 
they both got massive challenges facing them of different kinds. So Germany's got the big challenge around its energy policy and also its kind of industrial policy, right? Whereas China, you know, it's got demographic challenges. It's got the property sector, which is a massive challenge. So, you know, they're both in a kind of transition, really, from one economy to the other. Now, what everybody's talking about in the case of China is a zero COVID policy where there's a handful of people who develop COVID and they shut down a tier one city. And that's been catastrophic in terms of supply chains, in terms of trying to keep a company working. And I spoke to a client recently who said his employees in China locked themselves in the factory so they could carry on working. That's the kind of dedication you get from workers there. Well, yeah, I saw that the opposite happened in one of the iPhone factories. The workers had sort of broken down the doors and escaped and the factory had been looted. I guess it depends on how much they enjoy their workplace. But I think what's clear is that there has been a negative effect from that, a big negative effect. And that's not going to last forever. I mean, everyone said maybe things will start to change after the Communist Party Congress. And I think we've started to see some few seeds of that in China, of a slight relaxation of the zero COVID policy. So on November the 11th, they announced 20 tweaks to their COVID policy. So perhaps a little bit of a concession, but while she remains president, you can bet that he's not going to turn around 180 degrees. Oh yeah, there's no way it's 180 degree turn. So it's things like travellers from abroad will have to quarantine for eight days now rather than 10 And there's a loosening of restrictions on airlines carrying COVID-infected passengers and a slight relaxation of the mandatory quarantine for when you've got close contacts of close contacts of people with COVID. It's just sort of tweaking it around the edges, but it's showing the direction of travel, I think. But there's also things like common prosperity as a kind of mantra, because if you're an investor, clearly what you care about is earnings growth for the companies in which you're invested. Now, in China, the problem was that a huge proportion of the market was state-owned enterprises. They made up almost half of the composition of many of the indices. So the problem was that they're often loss-making, but the state favours them, so it often pushes business their way. So if there's a big infrastructure project, who are they going to give it to? Well, they'll probably give it to one of the SOEs. I think that was one of the problems in China, and that hasn't gone away. So whenever you buy an index, which gives you exposure to China, just make sure that it does give you whichever one you think is going to be best. State-owned enterprises, for example, may fare well under Xi, even though they're not very capital efficient. But what's notable is China's been falling, falling, falling since over a year. But then in November, there's been a very sharp turnaround. Now, that's a combination, I think, of China looking very cheap. But also, as you say, Michael, a slight relaxation of the policies, it seems. And I think the other spur to that uptick in the stock market was we've talked many times before about how the property sector is this kind of enormous bubble in China. 30% of the economy and it's starting to unwind. Property developers have been defaulting on their debts, things like that. Largely because the government decided to crack down on the sector. But there's been a kind of shift and a little bit of kicking the can down the road. You know, maybe they've looked at Germany and see how well they kick the can down the road. (laughs) And the US when it comes to the property market. So, for example, the People's Bank of China, the PBOC, and the China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission, the CBIRC, they've outlined 16 steps to support the housing industry. So, for example, they're going to include loan repayment extensions. So, you know, you can extend and pretend. There's also a major push to ease the liquidity crunch, which has been in the property sector since pretty much mid-2020. And I think that's the thing with China, isn't it? If they decide they want to save a sector, 
they can do it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's going to be a thread again, which runs through all of this, which is the government can do whatever it wants. And in China, they're not going to get much pushback. The other thing which I think is interesting is that you've chosen Germany and China, and those sit on opposite sides of the new divide, a kind of financial iron curtain, which separates the Western countries from, say, Russia, China, and India. And I think that's going to affect the fates of various economies and stock markets over the decades ahead. And it could go all the way to full capital controls. So literally, these markets might become uninvestable. I mean, I think that's how the US is starting to conceptualise it. I don't think Germany is buying into that vision. So, for example, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, led a delegation of blue chip German businesses who went to China to meet with President Xi earlier this month. And, you know, it's kind of controversial. So Germany's definitely trying to straddle that line. I mean, because China is such a huge export market for them, especially for things like their car industry. And you look at things like solar, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act in America, one of the goals there was to substitute Chinese components and things like batteries with an American-made product. So I think there's a very clear move. You know, you've seen it with the decision about chips as well. The US is very much trying to hobble China's export growth, but also access to these key technologies. So I think even if countries try to stand against what the US is doing, it'll be very difficult because the US has such heft that it can make life very difficult for a German company, say. But here's the thing. Germany is kind of unique in Europe, as in it's more or less the only Western economy that since the financial crisis has run a trade surplus with China. And that's partly because the way Germany decided to design its economy and really push towards export-led growth you could kind of say that Germany beat China at its own game over that last decade. I know Adam Tooze has made that point. And of course, we had the reunification effect, which created lots of new labour for the German economy. Although net less, I'm not sure it's been a huge boon to the German economy. And that export story between Germany and China has started to turn around now. So Germany is now in a slight trade deficit with China, where it was running a big surplus. And their exports to China have been more or less flat since 2012. It had a big few years after the financial crisis and then sort of flatlined. But it's still accounting for something like 2.5% of GDP. Now, they can't afford for this to be cut off, right? And it's especially important, as we've said, for the car industry. The CEO of Mercedes-Benz had a nice quote, which is, if one thinks that the Chinese economy could be unbundled from the European or the American, it is a total illusion. It would have dramatic consequences for the world economy that would be in no way comparable to those of the Ukraine war. But I think looking at German car manufacturing, for example, if you look at the Chinese market, they've got some incredible vehicles which are at much lower prices. For example, Xpeng. If you look at some of the reviews of the Xpeng cars, they have all the kind of gizmos. And for example, you know, we've just been to look at an electric car, which is an MG, and you open the boot, and sure enough, all the writing's in Chinese in the back. You're getting this off some sort of knockoff dealer, aren't you, Roman? What are you talking about? It's the MG dealer in Beaconsfield. (laughs) Okay, here's a question for you, though. In terms of the reliance of German car manufacturers on China as a market, What share of Volkswagen's revenues in 2021 came from China? I'd say about 10%. 37%. Oh, interesting. 
that's why I say it's a small part of the economy in a way, like 2.5%, but it's super important for key industries, which are kind of part of the national identity of Germany, which is why when Olaf Scholz goes to China, he takes all the car manufacturer CEOs with him, right? He's not taking the small <laughs> little businesses. And again, I think this is brand strength. You know, if you're living in China and you want to kind of impress your neighbor with your car, an Xpeng is going to be much less impressive than, say, an electric Mercedes. And having high prices actually might enforce that because even if something's cheaper and just as good, people's perception of it will be that it's not as good and it won't be such a luxury brand. But I think that cachet is not going to go away. And the other thing with the transition to electric cars is that that has an effect on the labour force. So making an electric car supposedly needs far fewer workers than for a traditional fossil fuel car because, you know, you're not building an internal combustion engine, you're just slowing a battery in. So I think Ford estimated something like 40% fewer workers are needed. Now, when you've got in Germany over a million people employed in the car industry, it could be a big deal. Yeah, I guess if you've got less labour-intensive production, then there could be a kind of economic malaise while you've still got pretty good earnings growth for the companies. Now, from the point of view of the investors, such as ourselves, then it's not very pleasant, I know, but really what you care about is the earnings growth. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, you could have greater margins, right? Fewer workers to sell the same expensive cars. Well, this is it. I mean, automation, that's the whole purpose of it, which is to reduce the cost of production and increase margins. Now, the domestic demand obviously will suffer from the fact that you've got fewer people employed. But if you've got a lot of your exports coming from overseas, which is the case for German cars, then that's not necessarily a problem. And I don't think we should underestimate the ties between Germany and China. So in terms of direct foreign investment into China, if you look at America, for example, only 2% of American foreign investment went into China in 2021, whereas from Germany, it was 14%. And to sum it up, you can look at just four firms, so three car manufacturers, Volkswagen, BMW and Mercedes, and then the big chemicals giant in Germany, BASF. And just those four companies accounted for one third of all EU investment in China over the past four years. That's according to Rhodium Group, which is a research firm. And it seems that Germany is really doubling down on this. And just in the first half of 2022, they've invested more than 10 billion euros in China, which is more than ever before. So they are definitely not stepping back right from the Chinese market. Well, let's just hope those gambles pay off, because if the US does clamp down on this, I think it could be a problem for some German companies then. And I suppose the thing we haven't really talked about is the energy policy for Germany and it's trying to wean itself off Russian gas, which is a massive deal for their industry. And to be fair to them, they have created infrastructure very quickly for LNG imports, but still that's going to be a pain for them for some time to come. Because I guess to some extent you could summarise the German success over the last 15 years as taking cheap Russian energy. Having a weakened currency thanks to the sovereign debt crisis. Having a weak currency, making goods really efficiently, and then flogging them to the rest of the world. And I think the euro is still going to be a benefit to them, you know, weakened currency. If Germany was to have its own currency, it would be much stronger, of course, and that would make their exports much more relatively expensive. So I guess to sum it up, both Germany and China have been export-driven growth stories, hugely successful over the last 20 years and now facing lots of challenges. But Roman, in this World Cup fixture, who are you backing? Who's going to win? Oh, this is a difficult one, because I think China has got really big problems at the moment, but it is looking very cheap. 
So if we look at the forward price to earnings for China, it's 9.1 on the forward PE measure versus 10.2 for Germany. So Germany is actually trading a little bit more expensive than China because who wants China now? It's just portrayed in the media as a complete basket case. And if you look at the CAPE measure, which goes back over the last 10 years, that shows that Germany is actually quite a lot more expensive than China. So that's something like 16.7 versus 8.7. So almost twice as expensive on the CAPE measure based on historical earnings. Now, as long as you can still invest in China, and that would be my worry, I think that's going to be the winner. So that's based on valuations, but also because I think they can probably pull themselves out of this economic hole more effectively than Germany. If it's any consolation for Germany in a football match, they would absolutely thrash China. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for that. And now for our third fixture, the USA versus Japan. Now, I've chosen this, Roman, because... It's basically a morality play. So Japan in the 80s had a huge share of global stock markets, which far outstripped its share of global GDP. Now, you could say America is in that position now where it has its own big tech giants and its share of the developed market indices is something like 70%. It doesn't have 70% of the developed market GDP. What do you think? Okay, well, it looks like there is an interesting analogy there, because if you look at Japan in the 80s, it also had a huge property bubble. And if you look in the US right now, it does have a hugely overvalued property market still, even though the prices have started to turn around. You know, that's going to have a cooling effect on the economy and also on activity there. And again, you know, concentration and a few mega cap companies And that's another nice parallel with Japan, where multinationals like Toyota and Sony dominated the economy. So I like that. And I think that probably will deflate. I mean, we're already seeing it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the peak of the Japanese bubble, it accounted for 44% of the MSCI Global Index, which was, you know, more than double its share of the global GDP. So I think there is a risk that the US is going to do a Japan and shrink as a proportion of global market cap. In fact, I think it's almost inevitable. You know, if we look out, say, 30, 40 years, then why wouldn't China and India be a much larger proportion of the global market cap? Because if America keeps growing its share of global market cap as it has been, then the world would truly become a winner-takes-all economy. They can't do that, I don't think. You know, eventually there is going to be a shrinkage of the US economy. Maybe not in absolute terms, you know, it'll carry on growing. It's just that other countries will grow faster, places like India, places like China, but also countries we don't usually think about, like countries in the Far East, such as Indonesia, which have a huge population, but very low GDP growth and almost an insignificant share of global market cap. What will happen is that the US will simply get diluted into a much less significant proportion of the global market. How quickly that happens is another matter. Yeah, I mean, it sounds plausible. The question at hand here, though, Roman, is over the next four years, USA versus Japan. So let's think about Japan. Why has that had such stagnant performance throughout the 1990s and the 2000s and the 2010s? Like, it's still below where it was, right, at the peak of its bubble. I think that was the problem, which is this is still the aftermath of the bubble. 30 years later. But, you know, it was just so big. It was crazy. It was about the biggest bubble ever, right? I think so. You know, if you measure it based on relative to GDP. And at the moment, what Japan has is now the biggest debt to GDP ratio by far for any developed country. It's over 200%. 
you know, they've gone all out on their QE program. And it's an irreversible one because a big part of it is ETFs on their own stock market as well as bonds. So the central bank has been buying Japanese stocks. Yeah. But why aren't Japanese stocks at higher valuations then if the central bank is propping them up? Well, that's that's worrying, I think. At some point, the central bank is going to have to sell those shares. Whereas with the bonds, you can just wait for them to mature. So I was looking into, well, why are Japanese stocks comparatively undervalued and for so long? A few reasons typically get cited. One is they have quite low capital efficiency. So historically, they seem to have put more focus on maintaining market share and employment rather than maximizing shareholder returns, those juicy things we actually care about. (laughs) And if you measure by return on equity, for example, the capital efficiency in Japan seems to be way below other developed markets. But I also think that the problem that Japan faces is that it's got many competitors for its kind of core markets globally. So, for example, if you look at South Korea, it is competing with both China and Japan in terms of high-end technological manufacturing. So I think that's a threat to Japan. Plus, Chinese people actively shun Japanese goods because of memories of what happened in the Second World War. So, for example, there was lots of animosity about buying Japanese cars. You know, they won't ever be popular in China. And another thing I think is there's now a recognition in Japan that maybe some of the structure around their stock market was not ideal. So they've recently this year reorganized it into a three-tier listing kind of situation where you've got prime listed companies at the top where they're trying to enforce international standards on the companies, especially around things like independent directors on the board and open up diversity a little bit. So it seems to be that you've got a lot of old Japanese men who are on many company boards and sort of governed them in the same way that companies had always been run in Japan. And it's kind of just left them in the dust a little bit. At least that's one of the theories. Now, if you look at the purchases of the ETFs by the Japanese central bank, the BOJ, it did target an ETF which favoured good corporate governance. So clearly they're aware of this issue. But I think the monetary policy in Japan is clearly at odds with the rest of the world right now. They're still quite accommodative, whereas everybody else is pretty much clamping down and raising interest rates very aggressively. Yeah, it's the real outlier, isn't it? So they're still sticking by their low interest rate and their yield curve control. Because their inflation is not as high as elsewhere. You know, in fact, deflation has been the big problem for Japan. It's dipped in and out of deflation on and off for the last two decades. And they never really managed to get it up to their 2% target, despite the huge QE program. And is that largely because they're demographics? I think demographics is a big part of it. So very old population. And almost zero immigration to Japan. So, for example, that's one of the reasons why the participation rate is so low in Japan, some people think, which is that you can't get nannies from abroad to come and look after your kids. So childcare is very expensive. Tell me about it. I'm not even in Japan. <laughs> I'm doing it myself. I should be paying myself a salary. But that's the interesting thing, Michael. You, as a man, are willing to look after your daughter. Whereas in Japan, culturally, I suspect that's still not very common. I mean, when I go to the sort of stay and plays around Islington, it's not that common here either. It's very rare that there's other dads there. I used to love going to those. It was great fun. Do you have parachute? Yeah, I've done that. We've done the uh, bouncy castle. Tumble tots, where they have a kind of assault course for littlies. It's so sweet. Yeah, Hannah keeps uh, pooping in the ball pit. It's <laughs> not ideal. <laughs> <laughs> Just see her, put her in there. I think she thinks it's a kind of communal potty or something. You just see her face sort of start to grimace as soon as she gets in the ball pit. 
Anyway, I don't know what this has got to do with USA versus Japan. But I think Japan did poo in the ball pit in the 80s and it's still suffering the consequences now. So we've talked a lot about Japan. Is there anything we want to say about the USA? Or do we talk about that enough that everyone understands it? I mean, that's what I talk about primarily. But look, the US is so good at favouring its own businesses and looking out for its own interests. And it's got a huge benefit from being a very strong economy with the dollar being preeminent amongst all currencies. So it does have that going for it. It's got huge advantages. Yeah. So let's get to the question at hand then. Over the next four years, what do you reckon? USA versus Japan, stock market performance. Well, Japan's known as the widow maker amongst strategists because, you know, everybody says, oh, this is it. This is finally Japan's decade. You know, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> and so many people have been wrong. But I think, like you said, it is the hangover of the bubble. Like you saw after the Great Depression in America at the end of the 20s, it took a long time for the stock market to recover from that bubble. And it stayed at low valuations for a long time because I think it has psychological impacts as well. People just don't trust it when a market starts to rally. After you've been burnt multiple times, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you do it again? So if you look at forward PE for Japan, it's 12.5 versus 16.8 for the US. So quite a bit cheaper. You know, certainly on the valuation side, you'd favour Japan. But I think that Japan probably is still going to have to solve its problem with QE in reversal of QE. And when it switches to QT, well, what are they going to sell? It's Japanese equity. Now, I think that's going to be potentially a huge problem over the next four years. So I think based on that alone, I'd rather favour the US, even though I don't think the prospects for the US are that great because of its high valuation. Very good. Neither of their football teams are very good, are they? I mean, I, I guess. Well, I'm Welsh in a way, and we managed to draw with the US last night. So yeah, they can't be that good. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. It's the first time for 50 years, isn't it? Yeah, we made it to the World Cup. And our fourth and final fixture of the Stock Market World Cup is India versus Brazil, the Battle of the Bricks. So I've chosen this because they kind of represent the two different sides of emerging markets. So you've got Brazil, which is a big commodity exporter, and then you've got India, which has a very young, dynamic, services-driven economy, really. Now, I think an interesting thing when you're looking at an emerging market is its degree of urbanisation. And if you look at Brazil, for example... The rate of urbanisation is almost 90%. And if you look at India, it's increasing very rapidly, but it's just over 35%. So India, I think, has got further to go in terms of urbanisation. And if we look at GDP per capita, Brazil's got $15,500 per capita, whereas India only has $7,200 per capita. So clearly, Brazil's further down the road of developing as a country. Now, does that mean that it's going to have more upside? It really depends on how well they manage their growing pains. But also from an investor viewpoint is how well they grow their earnings per share, because that's ultimately what drives the prices. And in Brazil, for example, the central government has imposed price caps on Petrobras, which is one of the biggest companies on the exchange in Brazil, in order to reduce inflation. Because if oil prices aren't increasing a lot, then that makes inflation look like it's not so high. Now, of course, if you're an investor in Brazil, that's going to be a problem because it means that the margins for Petrobras, which is a big chunk of the stock market, are going to suffer. Yeah, so it's interesting when you look at the Brazilian economy. So it's the fourth largest commodity exporter in the world. And for decades, really, its economy, its per capita income, the value of the Brazilian currency and its stock market were all positively correlated with moves in the global commodity indices. 
Whereas over the last few years, that's actually broken down really since Bolsonaro was in power. And it hasn't really fully benefited from the rising price of its exports. Now, what's also interesting is if you look at the exports by country, for India, the biggest export destination is the US. It makes up about 18% of the exports. Whereas Brazil, 31% of the exports go to China. The US is only 11%, which just geographically you'd expect to be slightly higher for the US. Yeah, but it's a commodity exporter, right? And China is hungry for commodities. I mean, the other context there really is that India runs a massive trade deficit, whereas Brazil runs a big trade surplus. And I guess in Brazil, another concern is going to be what happens politically. So we've seen a shift in politics in Brazil recently as Lula comes back into power and he replaces a fairly right-wing president. The question is whether he's going to be a populist and try to take money away from companies. And economically as well, you know, the question is how well is he going to manage things? Yeah, so I think there's two things at play here. You've got the potential for a commodity super cycle, which would surely be bullish, right, for Brazil as a commodity exporter. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you've got quite a difficult fiscal situation in Brazil with a lot of pandemic spending. And like you say, they're trying to control inflation. But then they do have a very independent central bank, which is a positive there. Yeah, it was interesting that the Brazilian central bank was the first out of the gates with rate hikes. And some people say that it's benefited from acting very quickly by nipping inflation in the bud. Yeah, and it does still have quite low unemployment relative to the history in Brazil. So something like 9%, which seems high by our terms, but by Brazilian standards, it's apparently not too bad right now. And then there's always the problem of inflation, which tends to be very high in Brazil. In India, not so much. Actually, they've had pretty good control over their inflation recently. And the thing with India is that the IMF expects real GDP growth there to be about 6.8% this year and to sustain that level in the coming years, so the next you know, two or three years, which is, I think, higher than they're forecasting for any other big economy. I think it seems as if India's pretty much got its house in order when it comes to financial stability. I think the place where it still falls down is in terms of the losses. So, for example, if you're trying to move goods from one side of India to the other, there's very weak infrastructure and there's a lot of loss due to goods simply going off. I mean, a lot of it's food goods. They've really got to address that infrastructure problem, which requires spending. And I think their political system isn't really geared up for that. It's very difficult to increase spending in a democracy because not many people are very keen on paying higher taxes. Now, Brazil, of course, also a democracy, but it seems as if they're better at imposing policies on the populace than India is. Yeah, so India has a lot of scope for regulatory reform, I think it's fair to say. Now, they've been chipping away at it, really, for the last 10 years. They've always had a very complicated tax system, as far as I'm aware, which is kind of being simplified. And they're also running a large number of import tariffs. Because they're such a big importer and running a big trade deficit, they're very keen to protect their domestic producers. But economically, it's not that efficient to do that. So, for example, they had something called the Mandy system where farmers could, for example, sell their goods at assured prices. Now, those kind of guarantees are great for the farmers, but it's an issue if you want to have greater competition. Now, India is a really nice example of the difference between GDP growth and earnings growth for stocks. So if you compare real GDP growth versus earnings per share growth in Brazil and India, in Brazil, there's been a fairly poor GDP growth of about 1.2%. That's over the last 10 years, isn't it? Yeah, that's the 10 years to 2018. Whereas the earnings per share growth was minus 9%. So there's a 10% gap between the two. 
Interesting. So the economy's been doing okay yeah. as a whole, but shareholders have not benefited from that. And India has been storming ahead in terms of GDP. So it's got real GDP growth of 7.2%, but real earnings per share growth of minus 8.5. So the gap there is even bigger, almost 16% difference. So I think the problem as an investor is, okay, they've got a growing middle class, they've got a fairly young populace, and they've got lots of development ahead. But is it going to translate into earnings growth? And that's been the real downfall of the Indian market. But it had a booming 2021, didn't it? The Indian stock market. Oh, it's been on fire. The good kind of fire. (laughs) (laughs) But they've done incredibly well. And valuations have surged as a result. So now India's looking very expensive. Yeah, it's not really that their companies have done exceptionally well, is it? It's that people are pricing in a lot of growth. And I think a lot of people buy into the stock market. Yeah. So the domestic interest in equity is just huge there. Because I think there is a lot of upside to India, right? For several reasons. Firstly, if you look at their GDP per person in purchasing power parity terms, in 1980... India's GDP per person was nearly twice that of China. But then by 2021, China had income per person of more than double those in India, right? So it's completely flipped over. So there's a huge potential there for India to do a China. And what it would take, I think, to do that while being a democracy is this regulatory reform we've talked about. So they've already started doing things. They've cut the corporate tax rate significantly. And they've also started to do some financial incentives for small companies and manufacturers, which I think is a positive. So there's a lot of things they can do, right, to boost growth and to boost their companies internationally. And I guess Brazil, ultimately, its fate depends on demand for its exports. And those are largely things like petrochemicals, but also some iron ores. If Brazil manages to be fairly responsible with its economy, then I think, you know, it's probably got a very bright future ahead. And I think if you look at valuations, you know, here Brazil is looking the much better choice because it's hugely depressed in terms of forward PE. There it's forward PE is only seven times forward earnings. Whereas because there's been this surge in interest in stocks in India and they haven't really sold off yet after the pandemic, it's at 22 times forward earnings. Mm, Yeah. So I think, you know, that valuation alone makes me probably veer in terms of Brazil for the next four-year outlook? Because I don't think India is going to do a China over the next four years. Yeah, I'm kind of optimistic for both countries, but it looks like India might be in a bit of a bubble in terms of the stock market, right? So that's not usually the time to get in. Yeah, so I think I'm going to judge in favour of Brazil this time around. Now, we have members in Pensioncraft from over 18 different countries around the world. So we do have a very broad perspective on markets and investment. So if you do want to join our very rapidly growing community of over 800 people, then just go to our website, pensioncraft.com, to learn more. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is why do index funds not perfectly track the performance of an index? Well, think of it from the point of view of the manager of the fund. How are they going to replicate an index? How are they going to copy its returns? The simplest thing is just to buy the contents of the index. And that way you could match it almost perfectly. But you have to impose your own fees, which are going to make a tiny subtraction from the returns. Yes, you've always got fees no matter what fund you buy, pretty much. But then in terms of how they track the index, I've heard of this thing called sampling versus full replication. So what's this? So it turns out you can track an index really accurately without having to buy all the stocks in the index. 
So let's say that it's concentrated in 15 stocks. Well, you don't have to buy the thousand stocks in the index to track it. You could just track the top 10 or the top 100. What if you're a super lazy fund manager or is there a real reason for doing it this way? Well, there's a very good reason, which is that the trading cost for the small caps tends to be bigger. So as you churn the portfolio, as you track the daily movements, usually the small stocks are the ones which are really expensive to trade. So I think that's why they do this sampling approach, because it reduces the fees. But it can presumably increase the risk of tracking error if one of the companies that's not in your sample suddenly, you know, 10x's very quickly. Exactly. Then it's going to be a problem to try and get back into line. And the other thing, which I think a lot of people have become aware of this year, is the currency risk, right? If you've not got a currency hedged equity ETF, which most people don't have because it's never usually worth it. The performance for a UK investor in a US S&P 500 fund, say, has been much better, right, than a US investor's. But that's not a tracking error as such, because the fund itself will say we track the sterling hedged version of the S&P 500. Yeah, yeah, it's not a tracking error, but I think it's just some people get confused by it, right? It's like, why am I not getting the minus 20% of the S&P? Why am I almost flat this year? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, judging by the comments on PensionCraft's Slack channel, yeah, that's very much true. So people have been surprised that their funds haven't lost as much as the US. At least in sterling terms. In sterling terms, yeah. Because, you know, sterling's weakened. <laughs> so I always think it's kind of a fiction because what actually matters is how many units of the S&P 500 fund do I hold, right? Yeah, I think long term it probably doesn't matter. But still, if sterling does strengthen a lot, we're all going to notice because it's all going to go into reverse. And there are a couple of other kind of technical reasons I came across for why index funds might not track exactly the performance of the index. And one was something called cash drag. So not all of the money will be invested into the stock market. Some of it may be kept back by the fund manager. For parties and golf trips, is that right? <laughs> well, you know, maybe you want to maintain some liquidity. And so I guess if it's an open-ended fund, then maybe you want to have some cash on hand in order to service those redemptions without having to sell some of your fund. So if you are expecting that, maybe you put a bit more into the cash buffer. Yeah. And you've also just got daily operations, haven't you? You've got to pay your staff and your offices and your heating bill. And you always need a bit of cash on hand. And let's say it's 1% of the fund. It's usually not that high, I don't think. But, you know, that's 1% that's not in stocks and not growing all the time. Or you may get dividends, which you haven't reinvested immediately. So there are lots of reasons to have cash there briefly. And then the final reason I came across, which is the most technical of all these reasons, is that it seems to be what some funds do now to drive down fees is they generate a little extra income by lending out the shares that they've bought. And when you're lending out shares, that comes with counterparty risk. If you've lent it out for someone who then doesn't give you the shares back at the end of the day, you've lost some money there. A very small risk because it'll be over collateralized. So they'll be very careful about who they give it out to. But it's so that people can short the stocks. So it does generate extra revenue and it reduces your fees. So from that point of view, you know, I wouldn't be that worried as long as I was fairly convinced they were managing the collateral well. But at the end of the day, the major index fund providers and ETF providers do a pretty good job, don't they, of tracking the underlying index? Yeah, I don't know of any fund where I've looked at it and said, oh, that tracking error is far too high. It's never usually a consideration when I'm buying a fund. I never even think about it. I just assume they'll do a fairly good job. I think I would look at it if I was buying something really esoteric, like tracking some weird index in a tiny country, right? Then I think you could get more tracking error. That's right, because there it'll be less liquid and it'll be harder to track. 
But I think for a kind of liquid, large market like US equity or global equity, even or developed market equity, you know, it's never usually a concern. You just want the lowest fee possible to track the index. Absolutely. As long as it's got the exposure I want, you know, that ticks all the boxes. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.